people are constantly saying that some of the coolest vertebrae are living up in the Arctic. All right, so maybe that's not something that people are constantly saying, but vertebrates do live in the Arctic, and someone's got to find out who they are. My name is Louis Colorotolo. I'm an invertebrate that is trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science at the University of Guelph. And in the meantime, when I should be doing work, but I'm clearly not, I like to talk with other graduate students about what they study and why anyone should care. And this episode is going to take us far, 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 far north. Because even in the high Arctic, there are still some vertebrae hanging around. And by all means, we need someone to tell us who's there. And that's where Danny Nowasad comes in. Danny is far up north, and she is telling us about all of the cool critters that she is finding in the freshwater pools in the high Arctic. And you might be thinking that there can't possibly be a lot of species that live in the high Arctic, but you would be surprised to find out. In fact, the academic community was surprised to find out, but let's listen to Danny talk about that. And the one guy who studies freshwater biodiversity in the South was like, well, there's not going to be that much. It's, you're like 69 degrees north. There's no way that these systems can support that much diversity. And his brain like exploded when he saw my preliminary data because, yeah, I'm, I'm setting up this baseline understanding of this region. So there may not be too many people up north, but there are definitely a lot of freshwater vertebrae. So while you're listening to this episode, keep in mind that we're both graduate students and we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Danny. How are you doing today? I'm so good. How are you? I, I'm doing great over here. Could you do us a favor and tell us your educational history? For sure. So I went to the University of Winnipeg for my undergraduate degree. It took me six years to do my undergraduate program, mainly because I thought that science was kind of pretentious and didn't feel welcome. And when I finally found the Department of Geography at that school, I realized that there actually were nice people in science that were willing to mentor me and Tell me that I had value and that I could pursue science as a career. So it took me a while to figure out what my calling was, but I had so many cool opportunities, including working in Churchill, Manitoba as a research technician at a field station, which is subarctic. And I would never have gotten that opportunity if I hadn't have taken university slow and decided to figure out what my interests were and where I wanted to go. So from doing my undergraduate program at University of Winnipeg to grad school, that transition was pretty abrupt. I very suddenly decided I wanted to do a graduate program. And then the huge hurdle of, well, how do I do that? Where do I go? What should I study? Who should I study with? Luckily, when I was in Churchill, I had the opportunity to meet a huge number of professors, research scientists, government scientists, and one of them was Dr. Sarah Adamovich, who's at the University of Guelph. Every year, she takes an undergraduate ecology course from Guelph to Churchill. And I helped support her research there. I met a bunch of her, her graduate students who were there. And I thought, you know what? If I want to do grad studies, this lady seems really cool. She's obviously interested in subarctic freshwater ecology. 
And yeah, everything kind of just took off from there. I wasn't super qualified to get into grad school, but I had lots of like practical experience and lots of field experience and that kind of helped open doors for me. And I started my master's. It was terrifying and hard and in a subject outside of my undergraduate experiences. And then at year two of my master's degree, my supervisor, Sally, offered me a PhD position in her lab. So I transitioned from master's to PhD in summer 2021, which leads me to where I am now. All right. I, I like that story. And, you know, I'm I, I'm a big fan of the six-year bachelor. I didn't get a bachelor until I, I did good six years before I did that, too. And then going into grad school, highly unqualified is exactly what I would use to explain myself. Yeah. And it's so hard because when you, when you decide to do grad studies and you realize, uh-oh, my grades aren't awesome, like, that was my situation... It, it really limited my financial stability because I wasn't eligible for a lot of these big awards. So it took two years of grad school and getting better grades in graduate studies to be eligible for these bigger funding sources. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a journey. It's a, it's a struggle. Um, but you know, if it's something that you're passionate about, it's it's something worth pursuing. Yeah. So speaking of things you are passionate about, can you just give us a brief synopsis of what in the world you're doing? Absolutely. So I study freshwater biodiversity in the high Arctic. I am based at the Canadian High Arctic Research Station in Cambridge Bay, Nunavut. So most summers, I would typically go there and I collect freshwater invertebrates. So I don't look at fish. I don't, look at, I don't look at water chemistry. I focus on those super gross things with like too many eyes and too many legs. It's funny because I, I actually, invertebrates freak me out like big time and never would I ever have imagined that I would be studying them. But my job is to document the biodiversity of invertebrates in my study area using DNA barcoding. So it's a pretty significant project, and I honestly can't believe that this was ever considered a master's project because it's huge. I am trying to document every species of freshwater invertebrate that occur in this region. Yeah. Every, every species. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not possible. Like it's, it's not something that just happens in one or two field seasons, like in the scope of a master's or PhD, but I have made significant headway on this project. I have 6,000 DNA sequences over the course of three field seasons. The algorithms that I use have detected at least 350 distinct species, which that diversity is way higher than anybody thought it would be. One of my committee members, I remember presenting like preliminary findings of like accumulation curves, like how many, how many species do we find and how quickly does the number of species go up with each new sample that we collect? And the one guy who studies freshwater biodiversity in the South was like, well, there's not going to be that much. It's you're like 69 degrees North. There's no way that 
these systems can support that much diversity. And his brain like exploded when he saw my preliminary data because, yeah, I'm, I'm setting up this baseline understanding of this region. So let's, let's cover the, the concept of biodiversity. Right, so there's a lot of species on this planet. Like, I mean, even the biodiversity between dogs. There are so many different species of dogs. And yeah, they're dogs, but they're different species. So you wouldn't, you know, compare a Rottweiler with a poodle. They're different, right? So, so when you talk about these invertebrates in different species, can you give us an example of an invertebrate that we might know and then a few different species of it? Yeah, so what's interesting about my work, and I feel like a lot of people think that I'm becoming this expert taxonomy person, I could not tell you. I can I can identify to order, which is pretty easy when it comes to taxonomy, because if I'm looking at a mosquito larvae, which most people are familiar with adult mosquitoes, especially living in Canada, they're annoying, they are vectors for diseases, they bite you, they, you know, you go camping and you're like covered in mosquito bites and everybody hates them. So they, they lay their eggs into freshwater, they hatch into these larvae, and then they become adults and they become terrestrial. So that's pretty common in my study area. And something like a mosquito, that body plan is pretty typical for Gosh, I can't even tell you how many other species look very, very, very similar to what a mosquito larvae looks like. There's like, let's say 2000 other species that have the same body plan. So my job is to say, okay, well, these guys kind of have the same body plan. I'm just going to lump them into this group called diptera. And that's why the DNA sequencing is so useful because I can just get all that stuff sequenced and then the computer tells me, well, this is this, and this is this, and this is this. So it's very handy. So I, we have to touch on an incredibly important topic. There's mosquitoes up there. Oh my goodness. Like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Isn't the, like the whole point of being up north that far that there's no mosquitoes? I wish that was the case. Thankfully, there are no wood ticks. And that is my biggest like every time i head north every time i'm waiting at the air like at the airport i'm at the gate and i'm always thinking thank god i'm missing tick season <laughs> yeah there's just not enough vegetation there's not enough mammals for ticks to survive that far north it's too cold for them but mosquitoes thrive up there oh my gosh i could show you these pictures where it's like sunset and it's beautiful and I'm trying to take a picture and there's like this cloud of mosquitoes. You can barely see the sunset through them. That's how <laughs> bad they are. That's horrific. That's that's terrible. I always say my favorite part of winter is when all the mosquitoes die. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But they're thriving. They're they're living their best life up there. Oh my gosh, they love it. And actually, here's a little fun fact. There is not that many mammals, as I mentioned, in the high Arctic. They're, you know, it's hard to survive up there. There's not a lot of resources. The environment can't support like as much life as down here. And mosquitoes don't always get a blood meal, which you would think they need to survive. They need it to reproduce. So in the high Arctic, when they can't get that blood meal, they actually eat pollen and nectar from flowering plants. And they, 
because of that, they're a really important pollinator. All right, so they're kind of like bees in their own sense. And there's one species of bees that survives up there too. So, so we can't really hate the mosquitoes? I try not to. I know that they have okay. purpose and other things eat them and whatever, but when I'm in the field, and my legs are covered in mosquitoes because I can't wear bug spray because I work in fresh water. I, I have to keep reminding myself, they have, a, they have a, a place in this ecosystem. They have a place in this ecosystem. They're important. <laughs> Very circle of life over here. We're... <laughs> so you work in the Arctic, the subarctic. So this is actually high Arctic. High Arctic versus sub how many different arctics are there just sub and high <laughs> sub and high okay we got two it's either sub or not so yeah. all right so you work in the high arctic which i'm assuming is colder than subarctic yeah yeah okay so subarctic is at the the tree line oh, okay so no more trees you're done with trees yeah. but there's still plants and bushes and uh, flowers yeah you would be shocked at how much diversity there is in plant life there um depending on the season you can go and it's just fields of these beautiful white flowers called mountain avens or dryas integrifolia if you're nasty <laughs> <laughs> or there's these like a sea of purple and there's so many wildflowers there that are just beautiful bright like royal deep purple or there's these like beautiful well, tall for Arctic. They're maybe like four inches tall. But there's there's like these banana flowers. And yeah, I did some pollinator work up there as part of my job. And I had to learn to identify a bunch of different plant species. And it was hard because there were so many of them. But nothing reaches more than like knee height. That's a there's like a willow type bush. And they really thrive in like wetland areas they like it really damp and really moist and that's the tallest thing that you'll see on the tundra there all right so so when you're there in the summer mm -hmm. uh i don't i don't know these things very well but is is that the time when it's really bright all the time oh, that's right so it's 24 hour okay. daylight in the summer um, and how warm is it in the high arctic in the summer so at this of course depending on your environmental context so i'll give you some context victoria island it's one of the biggest islands in the world. Um, it's very cool. It's on part of the Northwest Passage. So it's 69 degrees north, 104 degrees west. And Cambridge Bay, the community, is right on the coast. So you're going to get wind coming off, uh, off the water. And the Arctic Ocean is like super duper cold. <laughs> and it stays frozen until like July. The warmest I ever experienced there in the summer was 16 degrees. And that was super unusual and that was like you know like going out in a swimsuit and jumping in the fresh water pools yes. and meeting your biodiverse friends in person yes. because it was like that warm at 16 celsius ridiculous i would say <laughs> it averages between five degrees and maybe 12 degrees through the summer okay so 16 in my experience is outside of the normal what you would normally experience there um, summer doesn't last very long there. Like things melt really late. <laughs> of course, it's yeah. it's so far north. So when I got there last summer, mid July, the locals were telling me that the freshwater and the the ocean around the community had just melted the week before I arrived. 
Oh wow! So the we hear we see a lot in movies and and things like this. We see like the Arctic Research Station, and it just looks like a dark tube that people live in, um, and it's just dark. Yeah. And it it looks like it's underground, but it's not. And it's just like you oh you look through the window and it's just white. It's just snow. Is that <laughs> is that realistic? No. <laughs> so this particular research station is on the very edge of the community. So it's like super accessible. I just lived in town and I could just walk to the field station. Um, the last field station I worked at in Churchill was a 23 kilometer drive from town. So it was like remote and then extra remote because you had to get out to it. But what I really like about CHARS, the Canadian Hierarchic Research Station, is that it's so accessible from the community. And it's Definitely not underground because the ground is frozen. Like they can't even have pipes for sewer and water underground because it would freeze. What do they do instead? It's above ground. So mostly they have trucks that run from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day of the week, including Christmas, to bring water to houses and to take sewage away because they, they can't have any pipes. The only building that has a pipe is the Canadian Hierarchic Research Station. I, to this day, don't know how they managed to make it happen, but they somehow made it work. So they're the only place that has a continuous supply of water from the water treatment plant. Everybody else in the community has to wait for the water truck. And it's really common to run out of water, especially in these homes where you have like multiple generations or multiple families living in there. You can wait days for water sometimes even though you're surrounded by fresh water. So you as a researcher and are you norm you're normally based in um Winnipeg? Yeah, so I I was in Guelph for 2 years and mm -hmm. I decided to come back to Winnipeg with the pandemic. It just made more sense to be near family. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So so you you go up uh to Nunavut and then you come back down to Winnipeg. How long do you usually stay up in Nunavut? Anywhere from 5 weeks to 16 weeks. Okay, so it's it's a decent it's a decent stay, and you find housing, and you're doing all of that, and you and you're living your life. So what what are you doing like when you're up there? What is what's the social life of none of it? For most of the summer, so most of the summer, the town is kind of dead. They spend time on the land. That's just a community thing. It's also an area where Arctic char spawn. Oh my God, the the spawning season is wild. There is. Mm -hmm an export industry for char there and a fish processing plant. So a lot of people eat like a ridiculous amount of char all summer. It's a salmonid. So it's very similar to salmon. It's so tasty. I love it. That's kind of the, the vibe in summer. It's like people want to be outside. They were, it was like mm. minus 50 all winter and dark 24 <laughs> seven. Of course. So they're like tired of being inside and they just want to get out on the land. Yes, with the mosquitoes, like they, they deal with everything. So, so from, from what you've just told me about, you know, a lot of the activities in the summer, they're doing a lot of like outdoors activities. And I guess, I don't know, I assumed I, I watched movies, I was thinking like polar ice cap, frozen everything. There's a lot of biodiversity. Like, I, I didn't even know that there were as many as, as you had listed. Um, so so we look at something like biodiversity, and you're looking specifically at freshwater biodiversity, and then you're looking even further in more at invertebrate freshwater biodiversity. I'm going to say this, and I mean it as nice as possible. Wh wh who cares? I'm really glad you said that because 
That's a question I have to answer on every single grant application I put in. It's important to translate that into plain language as well, because you know how jargony science can get. So at surface level, I agree. Who cares about the bugs that live in the water? But when you zoom out a little bit and you take into consideration the context and the, and the food web that they live in and the, the ecosystem that they live in, um, freshwater is changing rapidly with global climate change. Um, it's driven by permafrost thaw. So when permafrost thaws, it releases all these extra nutrients and methane and all this stuff gets mixed into the water. Some of these systems, these lakes or ponds, are actually being held on top of the ground by permafrost. So there's a chance that they could just seep into the ground when that permafrost thaws and they'd be gone forever. It's, it's really, really important to understand what's there now so that we can monitor for future changes in these systems when it comes to something like climate change. Also, as I mentioned, Arctic char is super important locally. It's important economically, spiritually, culturally, and Arctic char eats a lot of these invertebrates. And there are also parasites that affect fish like Arctic char that currently these parasites don't exist this far north because the temperatures are too cold. But when things start warming up, they might migrate northwards. And how will we know unless we know what's there now? So that's why I think people should care about this. All right. You know, I, I think it's interesting. A lot of people, depending on where you come from, we tend to not have these like general broad perspectives of people that live in like, you know, very far away places um, and how their environment is affecting them is obviously, you know, an incredibly big issue. But then how their environment affects them is going to then eventually trickle down to how it affects someone who lives in Toronto or someone who lives in Miami. These things, it's a kind of a cascading effect. Um, I think I've even actually had Atlantic char um, at some point, Arctic char uh, at, at some point at a restaurant too. So like, you know, it, indirectly in the grand scheme of things, you played a role in the fact that I had yeah. dinner at a restaurant one it's, time. It's kind of a delicacy. Like people love it. <laughs> I remember it being good. I remember liking it. I I mean, who knows when it was, but so all right, you, you you're looking at biodiversity. You use your fancy tools and a lot of these things and those things. Uh, ultimately, you're finding out that there's a lot more than you had ever expected before. You know, you, how many do you have an idea? Do you remember when you first started? Did you have an idea of how many you were going to find? I love talking about this because I had absolutely zero clue what I was getting into when I started this project. I was working in Nunavut and my supervisors were telling me what they meant by DNA barcoding and what they meant by the context of this project. Like I signed up for it and then it took me like a year to fully understand the scope of what I was doing. Cause I had done some freshwater invertebrate work when I was working as a research technician in Churchill, and that's a lot further south. It's in the subarctic, it's at the very northern part of Manitoba, and there's a lot of diversity. Like they even get things like dragonflies there, which you do not find in a place like the high Arctic. So I knew that it would be less than what I saw in Churchill, but other than that, I was like, 
I'm just kind of making this up as I go. Like I kind of just put together some methods for the field and I got like a little bit of advice from this person, a little bit of advice from this person. And then I just roamed around on the tundra, stomping through wetlands. Like, I hope this is right. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like you're a grad student. I mean, that's the nature of the game. <laughs> Uh, all right, so you had no idea what you're going into, and you're coming out of this, and approximately how many years you have left? I know that that's not the most appropriate question to ever ask. That is faux pas. I think two years. All right, and, and what do we hope to accomplish in the next two years? You found out, oh, hey, there's a lot more than I thought there was. You can't just, like, put a cap on your thesis and just say, like, how I found out there was more than I thought. I would love if I could just do that. Imagine. Oh, Please, I would be yeah. I would be done two years ago if that was it. I mean, if we were alive 150 years ago, that would have been it. <laughs> oh, you know, I look at those papers and it's, it's like, because I'm in food, right? And it's like the effect of salt on ham. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Their, their entire dissertation yeah. is 15 pages. <laughs> I, oh, okay. Don't want to get into it. It's going to make me irrationally upset. What do you plan on doing uh, with your thesis? So... I am trying to focus on producing high quality science that matters and that can be used as a base for future research. Like that's really important to me. And I have had profs from Quebec contact me and say, is your library done yet? I really want to start doing research in this area and stuff like that. So it's nice to know that that's in demand and will be used by lots of people. It's not just this niche study that's going to be published in some niche academic journal, it's going to be out there. This data is going to be publicly available, not just to academics, but to anybody. And I'm trying to find ways to communicate it beyond academia because it's not like, yes, it's important to science and it could inform future policy and blah, 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 blah. But I want to communicate it to just like people in Winnipeg. I want my parents to be able to understand what I'm doing. I want to involve youth. One of my biggest goals is to create a biodiversity program using the knowledge that I've accumulated over the course of my PhD. Um, like I said, there's much more diversity of invertebrates in the South than there is in the North, but I have a good understanding of what these systems look like, what to look for, like how to sample them, stuff like that. So I'm working with the Manitoba Métis Federation to create a freshwater biodiversity program for youth, for Métis youth in, in particular. And I'm looking at ways to bring together traditional Métis knowledge with the scientific knowledge that I've accumulated. I want to be publicly available so that kids who were like me that thought science was horrible and like an elitist group who I didn't, I didn't see people who looked like me, who had my culture. I want to be out there and available to people and to show them that they're capable of these things too. So I hope that answers your question. I just, I care so much about spreading knowledge and giving back and doing acts of service. Yeah, you know, and I, I think one thing that a lot of people that are listening uh, have a tough time with, and, and honestly, I have a tough time with it myself, is the fact that, like, you know, a scientific fact doesn't stop at a scientific fact. These are things that can, you know, enhance communities. But also, you know, science isn't the be-all, end-all. It's not saying that a community can't give you more information that science can't. 
you know, you, you, you learn and you grow from two very separate entities and putting them together makes them stronger. You know, yeah. it's a synergistic effect. And that's a hard thing to do. So like you, you got yeah. a challenge ahead of you. Absolutely. And science now, good science, I think, is collaborative. People coming in with all these different expertise and knowledge and worldviews and different training and stuff like that. And it doesn't have to be just people coming from academia. Indigenous people also have an incredible wealth of generational knowledge. And it's important not to just extract that information and not give anything back. So what I want to do after my PhD is work on projects that the community identifies as something that they want to be researched, something that's going to help them. If I continue to work in the Arctic, which I hope that I do, I don't want to be working on projects where I look up some academic articles and I decide, oh, well, this subject is under-researched. I'm just going to go do this. I want to form relationships with the community, give them a chance to speak about their lived experience, what's impacting them right now, what's something that I can help them explore, and then use my knowledge and expertise and training in conjunction with theirs as a community and work together to learn new things and to solve problems. Well, fascinating stuff. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. And I, I really just want to thank you for your time and, and wish you luck in the future. Thank you so much for having me. If after listening to this episode with Danny, you are just craving a drive up to the high Arctic so you can hang out with a whole bunch of freshwater vertebrae, I couldn't possibly blame you. But before you go, and before the episode is over, we have to do what we always do on We Know Some Stuff and admit that we don't know all the stuff, which is why we always have a fact check at the very end of the episode. So Danny and I reviewed this episode a few times and we found a few things that could use correcting. The first item is not necessarily correction, but a definition that might make something a little bit more clear. We talked a little bit about DNA barcoding. Of course, we never gave explicit definitions of it, and we could have an entire episode just about DNA barcoding. But more or less, DNA barcoding is a system for species identification, and it focuses on uh, the use of a, a short standardized genetic region. And that sounds like a whole bunch of fancy words, but uh, we, we refer to that as like a barcode. So it's very similar that, you know, your universal product codes, those UPCs on the back of your cereal box, are used by supermarkets to scan and uh, distinguish commercial products. In this case, we are scanning and distinguishing different types of species. Speaking of distinguishing species, the next thing we need to clarify a little bit more is that when early in the episode, Danny said that we had algorithms that detected at least 350 distinct species, she actually wants to correct that the algorithms detect cluster sequences. These are kind of like large groupings of uh, DNA sequences based on how similar they are. So it's kind of uh, matching things that are similar. So the correct way that we could phrase this would be that the algorithms detected at least 350 distinct clusters, uh, and then those clusters are used as proxies for species. And I'll be honest, that's a bunch of genetics talk that I really don't understand. 
And speaking of genetic facts that I clearly don't understand, our last and final fact check of the day is 100% on me. And I made a whole bunch of unsound claims that dogs were different species. Uh, but in reality, it turns out that dogs are actually all one species. Uh, so, you know, if you, you look like a, a French poodle versus a, a Great Dane versus a Chihuahua, they're all the same species of dog. Um, but through a lot of selective breeding that we've been doing for years and years and years and years and years uh, we have created a lot of breeds of dogs not species of dogs and with that our fact check is complete and thank you for listening to an episode of we know some stuff